All right, Jesse, last week's bookie brother case had some serious twists and turns. What do you have for me this week? A young couple's passionate love affair results in a brutal double murder. Justice takes a winding path rife with shocking allegations, young love gone very bad. A flight from justice, bitter betrayals, and perhaps a wrongful conviction. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about dirty dealings, danger, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. We are still doing the dang stickers, so if you have reviewed us lately, send us a screenshot. And we'll send a cute little sticker your way. Yeah. And if it's your second time reviewing, we have a new sticker for you too. So don't be shy. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are absolutely thrilled, as always, this week to welcome and shout out a new set of incredible patrons. So thank you guys so much for joining us. Welcome to Helen O and Sarah H, Christina C and Summer W, Talitha C and Shelby L, and of course, Shara P. Yeah. Welcome, guys. <laughs> and hello. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome to Love Murder. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do what we do best, which is get right into it, right? I agree wholeheartedly, Andrea. It was not love at first sight for Yen Soaring and Elizabeth Haysom when they met at a dormitory barbecue at University of Virginia in August of 1984. They had some things in common, of course. Both were Eccles scholars, both were wildly intelligent, and both seemed somehow different than the other kids, somehow other. Jens was 18 years old, but looked more like 16, all big eyes and teeth too big for his mouth. Elizabeth, at 20 years old, however, could likely pass for even older. It wasn't so much her offbeat good looks, but the clipped British accent she spoke so carefully with, and something about the way she carried herself. Elizabeth wound her worldliness around her shoulders as though it was a mink cape. Jens was certainly drawn to her sophistication and intelligence. Elizabeth wasn't as impressed, telling her roommate that her first impression of the young German was that he was a wimp, an aggressive wimp at that. Over the next several weeks, her opinion would change. Indifference would evolve into friendship and then flirtation and then love and then madness. A powder keg of two, a folio du, two privileged young people with superiority complexes. Jens is the son of a German diplomat, and Elizabeth was the daughter of a wealthy steel magnate and an artist descendant of the Astor family. Mm. Yeah, they fancy. So it was perhaps not love at first sight, but it was a love that grew, grew like bacteria, 
that had the ability to fester and spread and ultimately kill. Whoa, Jessica. (laughs) I got really into this one, guys. I got to tell you, it is a roller coaster ride. And when we reach the end, I got to tell you, I'm still not sure about the conclusion. So, Andy, hopefully you can help me parse through this one. I know you don't like that. I hate not being decided. I, If you are new to the show, I am not an unsolved gal. Let's just say that much. I'm surprised I am. Yeah, we should do more. We'll have Andy do some episodes, some unsolved episodes for y'all. By Christmas break, Elizabeth and Jens were exchanging I love yous. And only a few months later, they would be exchanging alibis. Today's episode features a truly horrific double knife slaying, young love, fancy British boarding schools, international flights from justice, fraud upon fraud upon fraud, betrayals galore, and maybe, depending on who you believe, an innocent person behind bars for many, many years. My primary source today is the book Beyond Reason by Ken Englade, and I also watched a documentary series called Killing for Love. It's originally a German production. But I did find it on Apple TV for purchase. I think then they made it a BBC production. Got it. And then it was on Hulu for a while, but I think they pulled it. So now you can find it on whatever Apple TV is, iTunes or whatnot. I also listened to a little bit of a podcast called Small Town Big Crime, which we will talk about a lot towards the end of the episode. Okay. So we're going to kick it off right now by talking about Elizabeth and her illustrious family. Elizabeth's mother was born Nancy Astor Benedict in 1932. She was the goddaughter and blood relative of the renowned Lady Astor, who was the first woman to hold a seat in the House of Commons in England. Crazy. Yes. So she was from a a very wealthy Virginia family and married a British man and then I believe took over his seat. So she was a trailblazer, but mm, I think she had some (laughs) hangups as well because... From my research, it looks like she had just a dabble of anti-Semitism. So we're going to take just a dabble. Just Just a dabble is way too fucking much. Exactly. That's why we're going to take this. uh, We're not going to really put her up on the pedestal Pedestal. here. (laughs) Yeah. But this was a very wealthy and well-known family. Let's just say that much. Nancy was raised in mostly upper middle class Virginia in the States before moving to South Africa when she was 17 because her geologist's father worked for a mining company there. Nancy was married first at 20 years old to an Englishman that her parents did not approve of. It turns out that mom and dad were right. While pregnant with the couple's second child, she realized she needed to end the impetuous marriage. There was like a whiff of abuse. I don't know how true the allegations were, but Nancy got herself out of that marriage and she spent the next six years raising her sons alone in South Africa shrewdly investing in South African gold stocks and making a pretty nice living for a single mom of this era. I mean, obviously she had help from her family. No one starts at the bottom investing in South African gold stocks. No. But this was an uncommon occurrence for that era to do it on your own as a single mom. Yeah. At 27 years old, she met the love of her life, Derek Hasem. Derek was a 46-year-old engineer who was also a single parent and brought strength, intelligence, maturity, and stability into Nancy's life. The details of Derek's first marriage remain a family secret, but it seems that his first wife went back to her home country of New Zealand and left Derek with their three children, two boys and a girl. Yeah, she pretty much disappeared from what I could ascertain. 
So when he met Nancy, who was 19 years younger than him and had similarly aged boys, I think that her oldest and his middle to youngest children were around the same age. They had a real Brady Bunch situation going on with the five kids. And they did a really good job raising them because I think the kids all ended up pretty successful. Ken and Glade said that they turned out to be an engineer, an architect, a lawyer, and a surgeon. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's pretty <laughs> successful. Damn. <laughs> yeah. The couple married in 1960 and had their first and only biological child together in 1964. It was an adorable little girl named Elizabeth Roxanne. So Elizabeth was actually born in Zimbabwe. At the time, it was under British rule and called Rhodesia. Derek was running a steel mill that was owned by the British government, and he was ahead of his time. He actually got into really serious trouble by promoting African employees over their white British counterparts. Okay. So he defied that rule several times to the point that he was placed under house arrest. And he eventually had to escape the country with his family to avoid persecution by the white British leader of the Rhodesian Front. Whoa. Now, he was on the right side of that fight, but he had to end up leaving and moving to Canada with his family because he was in serious trouble. In 1968, the family moved to Canada, where Derek worked as a steel executive and Elizabeth became a Canadian citizen. I believe the whole family became Canadian citizens at this point. But life did not get much easier in Canada. There were major labor disputes going on involved with the steel mill that he worked at. And there was another scandal involving money at a later venture fund that he was a part of. I don't know exactly the details, but it turns out that Elizabeth later on said that she was targeted as a child, that some teenager had assaulted her in some fashion based on the fact of who her father was and the labor disputes. And they were concerned enough at this point to send her away to boarding school in Switzerland. Okay. That was also something that people of this social class did. So... I'm not really entirely sure if it was all about how much they were truly worried about the labor disputes and what it meant for their family, or if it had more to do with that's just what was done at the time. Because I know Derek had gone to boarding school as well, and I'm the other children might have as well. So she ended up going to a boarding school in Switzerland, and she would later report when she was an adult that she was sexually assaulted as a 10-year-old at the school. So Sorry, guys, I did not trigger one that, but there will be a brief mention throughout this episode of sexual assault and potentially sexual abuse incest. But we do not know necessarily if all of these things are true, and I certainly will not go into detail about them. So just want to give you guys a heads up. So this is something that we don't know if it truly happened because she has changed her story depending on who she's talking to. Okay about what exactly happened when she was 10 years old. There was a statement made much later on to a acquaintance that she was actually raped at 10 years old and her parents didn't care. She told other people that the man just exposed himself to her, which also very traumatic. Yeah. And then her siblings would later say that they don't believe that this happened at all. We have to take everything that Elizabeth says with a grain of salt, but I wanted to present it to you as an option because we do truly not know 
if it happened, if it didn't, or what level of this assault was. Yeah, I mean, it seems like something had to have happened, whether it's, like you said, on the spectrum, whether it's, like, someone exposing themselves to her, because it's, like, a 10-year-old doesn't just... I don't think she would just pluck this out of nowhere. No. Exactly. So... It's still also not very clear whether she reported this to her parents. I think she must have reported something because they did move her to a different school. They ended up transferring her to a British boarding elementary school called Riddlesworth, which is actually the same one that Princess Di went to. No way. After that, she enrolled in a very highly regarded girls' school called Wickham Abbey. So all still boarding. Very British. For most of Elizabeth's time at Wickham Abbey, she was very successful. It also seems likely that spending ages 10 through 18, essentially, in England left her with the British accent because really her mom was American and her dad was South African by way of England. So they were kind of a mishmash international family, but I would say her accent is the closest to British. She got great grades. She was the captain of the debate team. She was involved with the drama club, starring in many productions, and was on a national championship ski team. Elizabeth was poised to go to Cambridge after graduation, but something happened. Nancy and Derek enrolled Elizabeth in a series of high-level math and science classes to prepare her for career in engineering. This was a career that they wanted her to follow because her father was an engineer. And I guess they were just saying, we already got an architect, an attorney, a surgeon, and a lawyer. Like, let's add an engineer to the collection. So she did not know that they chose to enroll her in this program. And Elizabeth was definitely more of a English, Latin, languages, history type of student, drama. That was where her interest and where she really shone was. So for the first time in her life, now she's in this new program that's very dense, science and math, and she starts doing very badly in school. Yeah, I mean, if it's not what you're interested in, that makes sense. Yeah, and she had done well enough getting by in the normal math and science classes. She was a smart, very smart individual. But now that she was in this heavy program, she actually started failing. And this affected her self-esteem. And the school basically said, in order to go to a good university, top-tier university after this, you're going to have to redo the whole year. Whoa. So she was pissed about this. And it seems like she was in a dorm where everyone moved on or they were going on to higher education at that point. And she was told that everyone was leaving this dorm that she had grown with these girls. They'd all stayed in the same dormitory the entire time. Yeah. Now they're all moving on and there's a whole new group of people she's coming in. And she felt very unsettled. She felt humiliated and she was resentful to not be graduating with her peers and moving on at this point. I understand that. Yeah. So she ended up going into a full-blown rebellion. She started drinking and doing drugs and she became close with another girl who was also a little bit of a rebel, a little bit different. This girl, Melinda, which is a pseudonym from the book, was a lesbian who was out at school but had a bad relationship with her family because at this time, and especially in these like upper echelons, it just wasn't done to be out, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So she just was a girl trying to figure out herself and be strong in her own sexuality, but she was considered trouble just based on the fact that nobody was (laughs) progressive in this era. Yeah. And 
she was angry herself. So she had a lot of rage for like, obviously just at society, but then she had not gotten into the university of her choice either. She didn't want to go to her fallback university. She also wasn't going to do another year. So between the two of them, they were just like full of teen angst and anger. And the two girls said, screw this place, screw our families. And after they took their final exams, they disappeared into Europe. They just took off, went off the property, got on a train, and did not tell anyone at the school or their families. Now, they're only like 17 or 18 years old at this point, so this was a big deal. They're from rich, wealthy families, so obviously people are going to be paying a lot of attention to them just disappearing So Interpol was involved and they were actively trying to find these girls and notify their parents to where they were. Whoa. Yeah. So it sounded like the beginning of this jaunt was probably harmless enough. They got jobs picking grapes in the Champagne region of France for Moet Chandon. So that's fun. Yep. But things got dicier as things went on. So they had to leave that first great job, which they said was amazing. They got food. They got to drink champagne. They got to like be out in the fields picking grapes all day. But one of the managers tried to sexually assault one of the girls and they were like, okay, we're out of here. We got to move on. And this is the problem. They are very naive, very sheltered girls who are very young at this point and they're vulnerable They're also, as things go on, they're running out of money and options. So they become targets for predators. They ended up traveling through France, Luxembourg, Italy, and Germany. And they were getting so broke that they were selling their blood to the point of getting anemia. Oh, my God. Yeah. Along the way, Elizabeth got into acid and heroin, Mm. which... Yeah, paired with their poverty, led them into some really bad situations. And again, trigger warning for sexual assault, guys. They ended up in Berlin and like following the party scene, the drug scene, they ended up staying in a flop house with a group of Irishmen who claimed to be terrorists with the IRA. The girls were allegedly drugged for four days. And in the book, they use the euphemism passed around by the men. Oh, my God. It's a horror story. So when they finally came to enough, they escaped and they went to the British consulate in Berlin. And they said that when they showed up, they were basically in rags. All of their earthly belongings had been stolen from them while they were drugged and being abused. Not good. This is not a European vacation. And what year was this at the time or range? This is like the very early 80s. Yeah. Okay. So they had been on the run for about five months. They arrived at the consulate in terrible physical condition. They were starving. They were deeply traumatized, obviously so. There was some evidence that their relationship had been romantic or sexual in nature which is kind of beside the point, but Elizabeth would later deny it, which, again, might have more to do with society and her not wanting to be out. In any case, the girls were separated, and they appeared not to stay in touch after returning home to live with their respective parents. Ah. It was a very heartbreaking goodbye. Melinda especially did not want to go with her parents to London, where they lived, because they were not approving of her. And... Derek and Nancy told Melinda that if she needed to, she could come and stay with them in Virginia, which is where they were living at the time. 
Virginia from London, it's not an easy... In the 1980s. Yeah, it's not really like an easy hop down the road. You're not going to take the train there. But that's so kind that they offered that. It was. And later Elizabeth would say that her parents were pretty accepting about everything that happened. They were just excited to get their daughter back. There wasn't like, what did you do? Why did you do this? Why did you put yourself in this situation? You caused shame on our family, blah, blah, blah. They were not mad. They were just worried and relieved. And so I guess Elizabeth sent Melinda like one letter after they returned, but then the relationship was terminated. So like I said, by this time, Derek and Nancy had returned to Nancy's home state of Virginia. I think that they kept a place in Canada as well, but they were living in Virginia for most of the year. They had a charming country house Nancy dubbed Loose Chippings in the small town of Boonesboro, which is just outside of Lynchburg, Virginia. Elizabeth was able to finish her necessary coursework and achieved a very high SAT score. She got a 1420 back in the day when it was just out of 1600. Holding aside her rough last year and the five dark months that she disappeared, Elizabeth's resume was still impressive enough to get her accepted to University of Virginia, only 90 minutes away from her parents' home, and she was also awarded an Eccles Scholarship, which only 150 people per class get, and it entitled her to a partial tuition scholarship and a place in a dorm with other scholars. Is that global? Just at UVA. Just at UVA, okay. One such scholar was Mr. Jens Soring which is a very German name, guys. I think it's more supposed to be like Jens Suring. So I apologize for my pronunciation. And Jens was not just an Eccles scholar, but a Jefferson scholar, meaning that he had a perfect SAT score and something like, I just looked it up, at least in modern day, I don't know what it was back in the 80s, only 30 people per incoming class get this distinction. So he was awarded a full tuition scholarship. So these two smart cookies met in August of 1984. 18-year-old Jens looking like he just got his braces off. I mean, he looks young. And 20-year-old Elizabeth already looking like she had lived a lifetime because she had. I mean, that experience will change your entire perspective. It is the upgrade nobody wants to have to deal with the fast track to some deep maturity and hard life lessons. So Jens was also from a well-traveled and well-respected family, but he was considerably more sheltered than Elizabeth had been because of some of her experiences. And he even describes himself as naive at the time that he went to college. He had been born in Thailand in 1966 to Father Klaus, a German diplomat, and Mother Anne Claire, who was from a wealthy family in northern Germany. The family welcomed another baby boy two years later named Kai, and they moved around quite a bit for Klaus's job, which you can imagine as a diplomat. They ended up in Atlanta, Georgia, when Jens was 11. The boys acclimated well enough to the States, particularly the younger brother, Kai. Jens succeeded academically, but less so socially. He was described as intense, sarcastic, and sharp with his classmates. <laughs> He didn't have many friends, and he had never had a girlfriend or any sort of romantic or sexual relationship that anyone knew about. Some people speculated that maybe he was gay, but it's just honestly that he just didn't have any sort of whiff of that type of relationship while he was in high school. Yeah, no one probably got a sense of humor. No, he was very, very bright. And on the docuseries, somebody that knew him and was friends with his father and knew him from the time he was 11, 
states that he had the type of intelligence that is just so much more profound than so many other people's. And he's just very misunderstood because they just were not on that level. Yeah. Basically. So sometimes his witticisms would be looked at the wrong way. Jens was impressed with Elizabeth right away. She had an intelligence, a maturity, a sophistication, and she stood out because she just really did not seem to give an F. And this was 1980s Virginia. It's like a preppy pop collar time in life in the South. And she didn't seem to care that much about her appearance, even though she was relatively good looking. She dressed more like they would say like a hippie. She wasn't overly concerned with like her hair or anything. She identified as bisexual. She told people that she had these crazy experiences. She just seemed so much more like womanly and worldly than any other incoming freshman at this school. And like I said at the beginning, she didn't immediately see Jens as a potential amorous partner. But along the way, they ended up connecting and she realized how fiercely intelligent he was and how interesting he was and how they had similar dreams for what they wanted to accomplish. They really liked writing together. There was one other thing, too, which, again, depends on who you believe later on. He was very easy to manipulate. (laughs) (laughs) So... It could have been that she thought, I really have this guy in the palm of my hand. Wrapped around my little finger. Exactly. The relationship picked up steam like a boulder barreling down a mountain about to crush a village and its unsuspecting villagers because this thing got going real fast, real hot. (laughs) It was the perfect combination of madness, codependence, Two people who have very high opinions of themselves. So it's kind of like us against the world. No one understands us. They definitely thought that they were brilliant and misunderstood intellectuals. And of course, there was the sex. This was intoxicating for Jens. This was his first sexual experience. And they shared elaborate fantasies. We know this because we have found some of their letters. They wrote on full-on erotica to each other. Jens was real sprung. Elizabeth would later claim. Now, Jens says this isn't the truth, but I don't know if this was just like a mean little parting shot after their relationship kind of collapses. But she would later claim that he was impotent, but it was okay because he serviced her with his mouth. I mean, that's polite. (laughs) That's just good manners. So we do not know exactly the extent of their sexual behavior. I don't want to know. I really don't want to get into it. So let's just suffice to say it was good enough to get Jens all into this. And, you know, maybe like all relationships, it wasn't always hitting, hitting at 10 out of 10. (laughs) In any case, they were in very deep, very fast. During periods of separation, like Christmas or spring break, they would write these long, elaborate letters to one another. So we do have a very good idea of the secrets and the fantasies that they shared. One thing that they shared was a certain resentment for their parents. Well, Yen's complaints were more garden variety teenage stuff. Elizabeth described parents that were absolute monsters. We know it just isn't true. Yeah. So some of this stuff, I'm about to get into it because this is, it's very sensitive. 
what she talks about and what she accuses her parents of. This is another area where I caution you guys for a little familial sexual abuse. Again, we don't know if this is true. She actually denies it later. So this is what she's telling Yenso. She described neglect, indifference, and abuse. Like I said, we have to take everything Elizabeth says with a grain of salt, and she changes her stories all of the time. Many people close to the Haysoms, including Elizabeth's siblings, say that everything is a pack of lies. But it's entirely possible that some element, like we talked about the earlier situation, potentially did happen, and she exaggerated. And what really matters, though, is that Jens believes it happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is absolutely taking her at face value and feeling for this woman he is completely in love with. Elizabeth said that she was raped by three men at boarding school and that her father refused to acknowledge it while her mother called her a whore and accused her of provoking the assault. Wow. It seems like no one actually believes that it was to that extent. Okay. But that's what she told Jens happened. Yeah. And then... She further claimed that when she was at home from school, especially when she returned home to live in Virginia after the Europe debacle, that her mother forced her to pose nude for photographs because her mother was an artist and that her mother made sexual advances toward her. Whoa. Yeah. Elizabeth claimed that her mother would show these pictures to her female friends and that the women would leer at her. She said that one woman went so far to say, hey, I liked your pictures, and then tweak her nipple. Now, like I said, Elizabeth will later testify that her mother was abusive, she would say, but she was not sexually abusive. What kind of abuse did she list later when she testifies? She didn't say. They were trying to make her on the stand later, and we'll get into why they were trying to get her to say this that she had been sexually abused and she said no and they you said it before that you were sexually abused by your mother and she said no I said my mother abused me I didn't say it was sexual even though she did she did to Jens we know well Jens said she did it and I believe I believe that this was from the letters that we might have proof of too so some of this stuff is coming from Jens as well Jens was absolutely under the impression that Nancy was sexually assaulting Elizabeth and that her parents were absolute monsters. He was naturally horrified and protective of his love. So when Elizabeth told him that she wished her parents were dead, their fantasies went from the sexual to the murderous. I was wondering what way this was going to go this whole time. No. Less than six months after Jens and Elizabeth first laid eyes upon each other, Derek and Nancy Haysom were found brutally slaughtered in their own home. What? Andy, did you know that our seven-month-old Bernese Mountain Dog, Artie, is nearly 65 pounds already? That beautiful beast is going to eat us out of house and home. Yeah, good thing you guys are such a dog family. And family is exactly the right word. Our pets are members of our family, so we shouldn't feed them like they're in the doghouse. Womp womp. (laughs) Instead, let's give them Nom Nom. Nom Nom delivers fresh dog food with every portion personalized to your dog's needs, so you can bring out their best. Nom Nom's made with real, whole food that you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute to bloating and low energy. 
That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinary nutritionists, made fresh and shipped free to your door. Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and tail wags. Naturally, I'm going to be bringing it back to our puppy, Artemis, but she is definitely a bit of a challenging eater. Burners can have a tendency for stomach issues, and we've had to try already a number of different diets to get things just right for her. And that's why we're really excited about doing Nom Nom. So far, she's been doing so great on it. And we appreciate how much care and personalization that they offer. It makes just such a difference for managing her health and happiness with the most ease. Totally. Nom Nom's ingredients are cooked individually and then mixed because Science tells us that every protein, carb, and veggie has to cook different times and methods, right? This gives your dog efficient energy and packs in the vitamins and minerals they need, truly getting the most out of every single bite. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail is not wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trinom.com slash lovemurder spelled try n-o-m dot com slash lovemurder for 50% off trinom.com slash lovemurder think back to sex ed for a moment you probably learned all about how to prevent pregnancy but what about how to plan for it that's why modern fertility was created it's an easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within six business days. You'll get insight into your hormone levels, like your ovarian reserve, aka if you have more or fewer eggs than average for your age, and other important factors that can impact your fertility. The results go deep into what every hormone means, and you can also download the results to review with your doctor for next steps. Andy, this is such an awesome product. Did you know that one out of eight couples struggles with infertility? Nathaniel and I were one of them. It's still just such a hush-hush, hard-to-talk-about topic for so many people. But with companies like Modern Fertility, there are more resources available than ever. I know that with both of us starting our child journeys in our mid-30s, it would have been nice to have a little bit more information about our own fertilities. Yeah, no, 100%. Anyone that is ever curious about it, I always tell them about this. I think it's so smart. And it's also so affordable. Traditional hormone testing at Fertility Clinic can cost over $600, but Modern Fertility tests the same general set of hormones for only $179. And if you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder, you can get $20 off your test. Plus, you can get reimbursed for the test through your FSA and HSA. If you want kids today or maybe one day in the future, clinically sound information about your body can help you make the decision that's right for you. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $20 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. That means your test will cost $159, which is a fraction of what it would cost at a fertility clinic. Get $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash lovemurder modernfertility.com slash lovemurder. Yeah, and it should be said that all of Elizabeth's other siblings do not believe a word of any of that. Any of the stuff she said. Any of the stuff she said. And there is 
a track record of Elizabeth lying. So she may be a pathological liar. The details of what exactly happened and who exactly wielded the knife depend on who you believe again. So we're going to start with the facts. On a warm early April morning in 1985, neighbors and friends of the Haysoms had become alarmed. Derek had failed to show up for a weekly bridge game, and the Haysoms were not answering their phone. I mean, how old is he at this point? He's playing bridge. I think he was 76. Oh, my God. Yeah. He's in his late 70s at this point. Most upsettingly, Elizabeth had called one of the women to say that her parents had missed their scheduled phone dates, and she was getting concerned. And they knew, Nancy's friends knew, that Elizabeth was the absolute center of her and Derek's life. Oh, my God. She was the apple of their eye. So if they were not calling her back, something was very seriously wrong. So basically, Elizabeth had asked them to go over and check on her parents because she was 90 minutes away and she didn't know why they weren't answering the phone. Nancy's friend Annie Massey had a spare key, so she and two other friends used it to gain entry to the eerily quiet country home. It took mere seconds for the women to realize that their worst fears had come true. Just inside the door, merely feet from where they stood, Derek was lying on the ground, hacked to death with a knife, and in a dark, dried pool of his own blood, it looked like he had been there for a while. This was not a very recent attack. The women had the foresight to not contaminate the crime scene, closed the door, and immediately called the police. Because they did have some discussion about Should we go in? Where's Nancy? Do we need to save her? But it was clear by the state Derek was in that there was no immediate danger. They were definitely both dead. And also, seeing one of your friends horrifically murdered was enough. They don't need to go and see the second close friend of theirs murdered. When the police arrived, they found an unimaginably bloody scene. Derek was, of course, lying in the hall, and they walked into the home, eventually finding Nancy in the dining room. She was wearing a dressing gown, And her throat had been slit so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. Oh, my God. They show the crime scenes on the docuseries. And I don't usually go out and look for crime scene photos every time I do one of these. No. But this one was shown to me when I watched the show. And it was horrific. It is extremely bloody. It is like right up there with some Jack the Ripper shit because... It looks like an honest-to-goodness horror movie. I wonder how they decide, like, when they show those. Because they don't show them for everything. It's interesting, like, I mean, even legally, when they can show it or why they choose to show it. You know what I mean? Because I think sometimes I'm, like, really caught off guard when they show them in shows. And I'm, like, unexpecting it. I'm just imagining what the situation is according to the detectives and people who witnessed it. Yeah, and it might be different in Germany. Because I feel like in a lot of, like, American shows, they don't do it as, as much. This was originally a German production, so I don't know if there's a different cultural mores or what. But yeah, I was very caught off guard, too. It's really brutal. But I'm actually kind of glad that I saw it in the end because it really drives home the horror of this double murder. The police said that it looked like somebody had thrown buckets of blood around the house. Derek had been cut, sliced, and stabbed over 36 times. And while Nancy had not suffered as many wounds, hers were deeper and more instantly fatal. In addition to the slit throat, she had two very deep chest wounds in different positions that would have also ultimately killed her. Jesus. 
It was messy. It was violent. And it seemed very personal based on the vehemence of the attack. They were able to determine that the attack had happened a few days earlier on Sunday, March 30th. They were able to find a bloody shoe and foot impression. The foot impression was sufficiently clear, but the killer had been wearing a sock. So they weren't getting a foot print per se. They were getting a sock print. Wait, but like that sounds personal too. Like who wears socks around someone's house? Mm-hmm. The print indicated that it came from a woman who had a size six and a half to seven half shoe or a man who wore a five or a six. So I looked this up because I thought it was extremely small. Yeah. And I was like, did shoe sizes change since the 1980s? Because this seems very small. Well, the College of Podiatry said that the average shoe size has increased by two sizes over the last 40 years. So I guess the sizes haven't changed, but our feet are getting bigger. (laughs) That still seems small, doesn't it? Because like, so that would mean for a woman, it's eight and a half to nine and a half. And for a man, it's more like seven or eight. It's still small. Like Dan's like a 10 and a half, 11. But Dan's also really tall. I guess. Yeah. You have to remember we're dealing with a guy who is very small. So it could potentially be Elizabeth, I'm saying. Or it could also be Jens because Jens is a little bitty man. He is small and slight and looks like an adolescent. Yeah. Okay. So it's at this point, it really could be either one of them or maybe both of them. We're going to talk it out here. They were able to use Luminol to follow the movements of the killer who had apparently washed off in the shower before leaving the house. It did appear based on the Luminol and the footprints that it was just one killer. And it looks like the killer had left the house crouched down because maybe somebody was driving by, then got back up, then gone back into the house to do something else, whether it was to wipe prints or slit their throats to make sure they're really dead. We don't know, but we know the killer went back in the house, then came back out, got into a car, and then took off. They also found a soda can with fingerprints on it, several cigarette butts, and a hair with a root that was discovered in the bedroom but did not match Derek or Nancy's hair. Okay. Also, Nancy was blood type AB and Derek was blood type A and they found type O blood mostly around the door, likely from the murderer. So they believe that in the vicious knife attack, he or she must have cut themselves. When the autopsy results came back, the investigators were surprised to find that Nancy and Derek had been really drunk at the time of their attack. They both had just about a 0.22 blood alcohol level. Yeah, which is more than twice the legal limit, almost three times. Based on what Nancy was wearing and the lack of forced entry, it appeared that Nancy and Derek had been surprised at home after dinner while they were apparently enjoying some drinks. It was theorized that the person must have been at least somebody they were familiar with because Nancy did not change out of her casual dressing gown. And it looked like the attack had mostly occurred in and around the dining room. So they believed that maybe the couple had invited their murderer in and had drinks with them or offered them something to eat. Like, we're done with dinner, but you can have a plate and have a drink with us. The blood alcohol content was a surprise, as was another discovery. While searching Nancy's art studio... They discovered watercolors of female nudes, which isn't all that weird for a painter. But then in a drawer in the same room, they found five photographs of a nude young woman posed in a way so you could see her 
nude torso, but you could not see her genitals. The detectives would later determine that this young woman was Nancy and Derek's daughter, Elizabeth. No way. Yep. So now we're back in it going, well, she didn't lie about the photographs. They're there. They exist. And sexual abuse is something that happens behind closed doors. Of course, her siblings wouldn't know about it. Yeah. And like abuse can be something as small as your mom asking you to pose nude and you saying no and her saying you need to do it. Yes. Like, I'm sorry. Exactly. But that's like you establishing your boundary and your personal space, especially when you're of that age, is so important for anyone, male or female or non-binary. Like it's still all really important. freaking weird. Yep. Yeah. It's very weird, and that's also going off what you're saying. It's entirely possible that maybe a woman didn't tweak her nipple. No. But maybe she shared these photos with her artistic friends, and a woman said, oh, your mother shared her most recent painting of your nude body, and you look great. That would be weird. Yeah, especially if you said no. If you didn't want her to, to use, which is, again, there's a lot of other figure models in the world. You don't need to use your 19, 20-year-old daughter. No. So... Now we're back going, wait a minute. Was there a kernel of truth to what Elizabeth is saying? It looks like there's some evidence that there is. Yeah, or was it like the tiniest thing that made her step over the edge and then she spiraled? Well, the police did end up interviewing Elizabeth as well as her siblings and Derek and Nancy's friends to try to determine who might have a motive to kill the couple. Elizabeth suggested that it could have been one of the many business enemies her father had made in Canada or a woman who is pseudonymed in the book as Margaret Louise. Julian, one of Elizabeth's brothers, had been engaged to Margaret Louise in Virginia and then basically got a job in Canada, said that he was going to get settled and send for her, and instead just ghosted her and married another woman in Canada. Oh, my God. Yeah, and I guess Margaret Louise was very close to the family. She was all intents and purposes, one of them already. And she had a history of mental illness and psychiatric hospitalization. Okay. So she is now considered a suspect. They're looking into the business enemies that are being suggested in Canada. And there was also a theory that the murder was committed by Satanists performing a ritual. I mean, we're in the 80s. Satanic panic. Mm -hmm. This was based on some, I think, fairly random stuff. Like, Derek was cut almost 40 times. So they found a slice mark that looked like a V on his chin. They also found on the floor in the blood smears something that looked like a six inside of a V. Oh my God. Wait, what's a V for in satanic worshiping? They said that the V stood for voodoo. Whoa, guys. <laughs> guys, really reach in here. There was also like a positioning of a mousetrap. They said that like the mousetrap was a victory brand. So there was a V on the mousetrap. Stuff that they're really reaching and looking for it here. They were like the candles in the house were burned. It's like, well, maybe they burned candles when they ate dinner. <laughs> it was a lot of stuff that did not add up to a satanic ritual. Yeah, that's just what everyone was doing at the time. It was. They brought like an expert, like a satanic. Oh, my God. Ritual expert, apparently. Anyway, that, of course, was all BS. And the killer Canadian businessman was a dead end. And the jilted fiance, of course, did not end up being the murderer. Margaret Louise had voluntarily given fingerprint, footprint and blood samples. And she had been excluded. She did say something of interest, though, to the police when they were letting her off the hook. She said that she had once been very close with Elizabeth 
because their families were close, obviously. And that after the murders took place, they all got together and Elizabeth was pouring some juice and Margaret Lees was saying, oh, it's so nice that we're all together. This is a horrific thing that happened, but I'm glad to see you again and get to catch up. And apparently Elizabeth stopped and looked at her and said, you know, Margaret Louise, I'm the devil and you're the sacrificial lamb. Uh, okay. <laughs> Excuse me? It's like, I love these eggs that came with my omelet. You know, I'm the devil. <laughs> yes. But apparently the police describe Margaret Lees as very difficult to interview, that she was all over the place, that she really was not quite, I don't even know the word for it. She just like wasn't all there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At first they're like, okay, did she really say that? And then later on they look at that as very foreboding. I mean, it's foreboding no matter who it's, it's coming it's from. It's always yeah. foreboding. Yeah. I don't think I'd ever want to be called the sacrificial lamb. Also, I mean... Elizabeth could have said that to her knowing that nobody would believe Margaret Louise. Yeah, that's crazy. So they also are interested in that because Elizabeth had at some point, she had switched. When they first interviewed her, they said, we're looking at Margaret Louise for a suspect. Do you think she would have wanted to kill your parents? And she was like, oh, no, Margaret Louise is not mentally well, but she's not a murderer. And then as the heat got on, all of a sudden she switched her story and she said, you know what? I've been thinking. And Margaret Louise said this one thing this time. She did this one thing. I definitely think that it could have been her. You guys should look into that. You should definitely look harder at Margaret Louise. But Elizabeth also volunteered to give samples to the forensics lab. So she gave her blood, her fingerprints, her shoe print, everything. And Elizabeth was excluded. She wow. did not fit the sock print, the blood type, anything. So we know now that Elizabeth wasn't the one who actually did the murdering, but was she involved? The rest of the family gave samples as well. And well, Julian's footprint apparently was a potential match. So like I said, a lot of guys apparently didn't have such large feet back in the day. Crazy. He was ruled out because he had a rock-solid alibi in Canada. There's just absolutely no way it was him. So all bizarre roads just kept leading the investigators back to Elizabeth and her strange boyfriend, Jens. Now, of all the people they had asked to submit samples, only one person had continued to avoid doing so. I bet you can guess which person declined to give his samples. Jens. Yes, obviously. So he always had a reason. He said, oh, yes, absolutely. I'll do it. Oh, sorry. I have a big test. Oh, I can't leave Charlottesville for this reason. Oh, you know, something just came up. I'm not going to be around. So he kept coming up with excuses why he could not give these samples to the lab. So now, of course, they're suspecting him. And detectives looked closer at Elizabeth and Jens's alibi because they claimed to be together on the weekend of the murder. Elizabeth claimed that the couple spent the weekend of the murders in Washington, D.C., going to movies, driving around, and staying in a hotel together. They said they, they just wanted to get out of town for the weekend. Where's the receipts? They have the receipts. They did stay in a hotel. There's movie tickets, even. They had rented a car, so the detective went to the rental place in Charlottesville, where they had rented the car, and pulled the receipt. Elizabeth and Jens had racked up 669 miles. However, Charlottesville to D.C. and back was around 450 to 460 miles. Mm. 
So how did they get so many extra miles on the car? A little detour? Yep. The detective then did the math of driving from Charlottesville to D.C. and then D.C. to the Haysom's house, back to D.C., and then to Charlottesville. And with allowing a few miles for driving around D.C., the numbers were almost exact. And they had sixes in them, right? Six, six, nine. <laughs> and nine upside down is a six. <laughs> so, eh. The investigators now believed that Elizabeth had wanted her parents dead, either for the money left for her in their will or pure anger and revenge about maybe some very serious crimes they had committed against her or maybe just the resentment about school and about how they had treated her when she was younger and being sent away to boarding school when she was only 10 years old. There was a lot of anger inside Elizabeth, so it didn't even really need a financial motive. And they thought that she probably put her boyfriend up to this, sending him to her parents' house in the car that she rented while she established the couple's alibis by going to the movies and buying two tickets. Nancy and Derek had met Jens at UVA, so they would have known him. They would have recognized him. They would have thought it was weird maybe that he was there by himself and not with Elizabeth, but they would have let him in the house. All they needed now was to get Jens's blood sample and prints to confirm their suspicions. However, by the time they were able to get to Charlottesville to push the issue, Jens and Elizabeth had disappeared. They're gone. Of course. The couple had gotten nervous after the authorities told Elizabeth's brother Howard that they believed they would soon be able to make an arrest in the case. And because the detectives were coming down to Charlottesville and they wanted to speak to Jens and get a warrant, essentially, to get that sample from him. So when they arrive, the two are gone. They had moved off campus to an apartment they shared with a third roommate. Okay. And Jens had methodically wiped down every surface in the apartment so that the authorities were unable to lift any of his prints whatsoever. Yeah, or DNA or any. I guess DNA didn't exist yet. DNA wasn't really a thing, but we are going to get into some DNA later. He and Elizabeth had also written letters and left them with their roommate to give to Elizabeth's brother and the authorities. Elizabeth urged her family not to look for her. She said, I didn't do it, but I'm going to go away with Jens because I want to. Please don't come for me. Let me go live my life. Jens's was addressed to the police. And according to Ken Englade's book, Beyond Reason, Jens rather sarcastically suggested that they not make too much of a mess going through his belongings because his parents might want them. Then he arrogantly advised them to keep investigating as before. He said he was incapable of committing murders like those of Derek and Nancy because of his ingrained pacifism. (sighs) He implied he was leaving not because of the crime, but rather because he was unhappy at UVA And he also added that he was very sorry that Elizabeth had allowed them to take her prints and a blood sample. Wait, I don't get that last part. I think he said that she shouldn't have given it to you anyway. Why did you demand it, basically? That's what the impression that I got. Okay. Like, I'm not going to give it to you, and she should have never given it to you either. I'm sorry that she did. The couple had used fake passports, leaving about 24 hours apart from one another, and they were totally in the wind by the time... Her brother caught on to the fact that they weren't there anymore and then notified the authorities. So every foreign agency is getting involved to try to find these fugitives from the law. And it would take seven and a half months for the authorities to discover where Elizabeth and Jens had gone 
And when they did, the information arrived in a phone call from the UK. On May 30th, 1986, Detective Ricky Gardner in Virginia received a call from Detective Constable Terry Wright in Richmond, England. They had caught Elizabeth and Jens using different names and IDs in a Marks and Spencer scam, which I will explain later, that revealed check fraud. And when they searched the couple's rented flat, they had found pages of journal entries and letters that suggested the two scam artists had committed far greater crimes back in the old U.S. of A. Oh, my God. The detective constable was actually calling Virginia just to see, because he didn't know based on reading this. He's like, this could be some really messed up creative writing. <laughs> could be fiction. But I'm a little freaked out that these people in our custody for check fraud are actual murderers. So I'm going to call just see. So he apparently asked for this detective who had been named in one of their letters Oh, my God. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I don't know why they kept all this stuff. It's just, All of it's... them do. All of these murderers do. It's There's something not right. Because if you're going to, like, kill someone, you're obviously not going to be able to process common sense. This is, like, another point for Marie Kondo. Although they might say it gives them joy to keep that stuff. It just seems like a lot of murderers are little hoarders. Yes. Yeah, they had kept this and they had talked about leaving the country and the detectives and what they knew and how much they knew. So he calls them and he's like, I have to ask you a question. Are Derek and Nancy Hasem dead? And the guy's like, yeah. And he's like, have they been murdered? And he's like, yes. And he's like, are you looking for Elizabeth Hasem and Yen Sorg? And he's like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> God. But he said that it was so crazy and the guy had an accent and he, Richmond, Virginia, he was saying Richmond, England. And he was like, I know Richmond and it's not over in England. Oh, my God. So like he just thought it was a prank. He almost hung up on the guy because he's like, oh, somebody's messing with me because we haven't been able to find these people and solve this case. And it was a very high profile case, obviously. But they actually talked and he's like, shit. And the detective constable is like, we got your murderers right over here. Wow. We'll hold on to them for you. And then it's like this incredible scramble to get the prosecutor and the head detective over to England because they didn't have passports. So they're trying to like rush passports and really we can't make an exception. Right. And they're like they're going to Washington, D.C. to get them rushed and then they're catching a plane. And it's a whole story. I mean, this is an adventure. So they're going over there to question them. So, well, well, they're getting their passports straightened out. We will talk about the journey that Elizabeth and Jens made to get them to the point where they're in jail now. To the Marks and Spencer scam. <laughs> it got them from a flight from justice to a Marks and Spencer scam. It's embarrassing. They had had quite the journey. They had traveled from Virginia to London, then on to Paris, to Brussels, to Luxembourg, to Switzerland, then to Bulgaria and Yugoslavia. What? They had also stopped at several embassies trying to figure out if they could get work in places that didn't extradite the United States, but they could not. They were also trying to figure out if they could use his German nationality for anything or they'd be safe if they went somewhere, but they were rejected for getting jobs almost everywhere. Okay. So it wasn't working, but they had some money. And Elizabeth had taken all of her mother's jewelry. So they were like previously, I guess her mom had given her a lot. And then after she died, she had taken some. 
So it wasn't like she stole it from the crime scene. It was like after they were passed, she took it. And it looks like she was selling that jewelry too. So that's where they were getting their money at this point. Elizabeth managed to get an international driver's license and they rented a car. But they ended up getting into a very, very bad car accident in Yugoslavia. I mean, it was like a head-on collision. The car flipped, the whole thing. And they both got pretty bad head injuries at that point. Jens even required several stitches in his skull. So they ended up sneaking out of the hospital and abandoning the ruined car and then hopping on a train to Vienna. This is like a movie, only these are the bad guys. (laughs) Yeah, it's like whenever someone like slips out of the hospital and like leaves everything, they're usually, it's not a good sign. (laughs) It's not a good sign. Sneaking out with a hospital gown, your ass is like hanging out. I mean, listen, I want to escape some hospital bills too, but (laughs) I also want to make sure my head's okay. Yeah. Well, they took a plane to Thailand then. Oh, my God. We're just playing where in the world is Carmen San Diego at this point. They ran out of money in Thailand. And like I said, they were having a very hard time getting employment because obviously they were foreigners and they didn't have any sort of paperwork that would allow them to work in other countries. So they started a traveler's check fraud scheme. They almost got caught in Thailand. They went to Singapore again, did the whole scheme, almost got caught again. They flew from Singapore to Zurich by way of Moscow. How are they flying? They had false identification that was allowing them to fly. And just enough money to get a flight? Yeah. Well, they were scamming. They were using this. It's pretty complicated. I'm going to get into the Marks and Spencer thing, so I'm not going to get into all their scams. He explains it in the book, too, how they were doing this traveler's check fraud, which was, I would say, 50% successful for them at that point. They ended up going back to England, finally, where they ran a series of grifts until they got caught in May. They were doing, like, really low-level stuff, too, like saying that they were collecting for a charity and going door-to-door and then just taking the money. So they're just trying everything at this point. They had a, a bank scam where they would open a bank account and use all of the test checks before the bank realized. Stuff like that. So when they ran out of, like, banks to hit up and everything... They decided to do this Marks and Spencer scam, which at the time, Marks and Spencer was one of the only stores, and especially big chains, that would give you cash back when you returned an item. Okay. Instead of just store credit. And so what they would do is that they would hit up Marks and Spencers all over the place with disguises on. Oh my God. And they would buy a bunch of stuff up to the level that they'll give you the cash back with a check that was bad and was going to bounce. And then they would go back to a different Marks and Spencer and return the items for cash. So, wow, somebody caught on. Yeah, it's actually, it's like not that dumb. I mean, they made lots and lots and lots of money doing this, which is crazy. And they did this hundreds of times. When the police ended up catching them and then searching their apartment, they found it just stuffed to the gills with... M&S bags just all over the little flat. They're like, wow, you really like Marks and Spencer, don't you? Oh, my God. (laughs) But of course, Andy, that's not all they found. They also found incriminating writings that were either a macabre creative writing exercise or evidence that the young couple was on the run after committing the most deadly of sins. It was clear from the letters that Elizabeth was certainly manipulating Jens into killing her parents. But on the other side, he did not seem to need much convincing. He was very up for the mission. 
In one letter, Elizabeth stated plainly that her parents did not approve of the relationship and they were encouraging her to break up with him. And if she didn't, they were going to cut her off. So they're writing these letters back and forth to each other in the same apartment. Some of these letters were from the various Christmas breaks. So they were separated at Christmas before the murders. And then she had gone on a skiing trip in Yugoslavia during, I think, either a winter or spring break during their second semester of freshman year. And they had been separated at that point, too. So a lot of these letters are saved from that time for some reason. Yeah. And so that was when they were cooking up the scheme, essentially. So she is saying that the only way we can be together and have money because his parents weren't giving him a lot of money or like his wealthy grandmother wasn't giving his parents any money for some reason was if they killed Nancy and Derek. Then they could be together as they choose and she's going to get at least some money in the will. This wasn't just a manipulation, although it certainly would have worked to scare Jens, who was absolutely in love with Elizabeth and terrified of losing her. One of Elizabeth's brothers did say that they did not approve of the relationship. They did not like Jens. They did not think that he was a good partner for Elizabeth. They didn't want her to be with him. And while they didn't end up changing their will, it looks like they spoke to an attorney about potentially cutting off Elizabeth. But that seemed like it wasn't contingent upon her relationship. It was just in general. Okay. So they find all these writings, and then, of course, they call Virginia, who is losing their mind. Detective Gardner could not believe his luck. So he and the prosecutor go on their journey, their, like, amazing race to get over to the U.K. and cross the pond to nab the murderous lovers. So by the time they got over there, I think Elizabeth and Jens had been in separate prisons for a few weeks. And the relationship was not going so great. This is kind of like they had that sick, almost like spell when they're together and they get separated and reality is setting in. They're not in that folie du madness anymore. Now they're in real prison and they're looking down the barrel of what their futures are going to be. So Jens is already writing letters, questioning his love for Elizabeth and even saying that the sex wasn't that great anyway. (laughs) And Elizabeth seemed likewise fed up with Jens. When the Virginia authorities interviewed Elizabeth, she refused to cooperate beyond saying that the letters and journal entries were simply works of fantasy. So she's leaning into, hey, we're writers, we're intellectuals, we like to entertain these dark thoughts, but this is not real and I did not do anything that would result in my parents' death. So Elizabeth stayed pretty mum. She dummied up. But Jens, likely thinking that he might get some sort of diplomatic immunity because of his father or that he could potentially be extradited back to Germany because they're in England at this point. He ends up confessing first. Faced with the letters and the fact that he wouldn't give any samples and that they escaped, ran all over the world. Yeah. Jens admitted to the murders. When asked why he did it, he said, I fell in love with the girl. We talked about killing her parents. I didn't want to do it, but I drove to their house and killed them, and I got caught. That was his statement. Okay. When they told Elizabeth that Jens had confessed, but, of course, even though he had not said that Elizabeth was involved at all, other than they had discussed it together, the police made it sound like he had implied that she was involved Implicated heavily. Her, yeah. Yes, exactly. 
Elizabeth started talking as well. But their stories were all over the place. You'll see they'll change several times. They diverge from one another's. So Jens initially tried to say that he'll later say he was trying to cover for Elizabeth. He said, I wasn't going to kill them. We were in D.C. We were talking about her parents. I decided to drive up and man-to-man talk to Derek Hasem so we could get on the same footing about our relationship. And he got violent with me. And then Nancy joined in the attack, and I had to kill them both out of self-defense. Okay. So that's his story. Elizabeth agreed that she had not known anything and that Jens had done it all on his own. However, hours after placing all of the blame on Jens, she requested to speak to the detectives again, and it was two in the morning. She said that she was regretting what she said on the record. She wanted to clear things up. She said... I requested further statement to be given because I felt that I had betrayed my love for Jens, my loyalty to him, that I had done him a disservice. I don't know if the charge against me, what it will be. But as I said in one of my letters, we did it together. And in some ways, I'm more guilty than he is. He loved me beyond reason. I love him beyond reason, too. She added, I suppose I used that love. Because of my own weakness of character, many times I've tried to wriggle out of that responsibility and the guilt of putting him in this position. I can't do that any longer. I can't bear leaving my last statement as it stands. It is my will that made him kill my parents. He would not have done it, I am sure, if he had not loved me so much and I him. Very dramatic. It's very dramatic. Again, I don't know if these these kids are living in the real world. I mean, we've talked before about when your brain is actually formed as a young adult and when you can really handle big concepts and the reality of forever because the part of your brain that (laughs) can understand consequences isn't totally formed. Yeah. And so they are both very dramatic about each other and what they're doing here. They've been on the run for all these months, going through all these dramatic experiences. This is her, like, second time around just kind of wandering at the age of 20. Yes. Which is wild. Yes. Later, a psychiatrist will say that she has a borderline personality disorder, and she forms these very intense relationships that are end-all, be-all with her, with her mother, with Melinda, with Jens, and then it's over and she moves on. So this is definitely not new to her. This is the second time she's had a very dangerous, very dramatic excursion being on the run. Elizabeth did maintain, though, that she was not present at the time of the actual murder. So she said that dramatically, but then when they asked for clarification, she still would not admit that she put him up to it or that she was there when it happened. She was just like, It's just my fault for loving him so much and that I spoke of my pain. And so that's why he did it, because he cared for me. Like, of course, I'm more guilty because I told him all these things. On December 17th, 1986, Jens and Elizabeth were sentenced to one year for the bank fraud in England with credit for time served. As soon as the sentences were handed down, Scotland Yard detectives arrested them both for the murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem. This was actually the first time the couple had seen each other in person for months. And it was very clear by then that the honeymoon was over. I'd say. Apparently, they had exchanged some letters about how they were going to handle it and go forth and what they were going to plead and if they were going to fight extradition. They were disagreeing about 
how they should have a unified front. And at the point where they saw each other in person, they were openly hostile to one another, especially Jens to Elizabeth. He was witnessed by the guards apparently hissing at her, you're going to be damned sorry. When they had to do a hearing together again, he had to be chained to the max because they were genuinely afraid that he might attack Elizabeth because he was so angry. A couple weeks after this happened, a woman visited Elizabeth in prison with a message from Jens. The message was that he no longer loved her and he had not for a long time. He said that he was worried, though, that she planned to place all of the blame on him and made a counter suggestion that Elizabeth should take all the blame for the murders and that if she said that she did everything and it wasn't him, as a woman, she probably wouldn't get the death penalty. And then when she was in prison and afterwards, he would financially compensate her. They both are annoying. Oh, they're so obnoxious. These two kids are like the really intellectual drama nerds that you all knew. And I could say that I was one going to the extreme, like the major far extreme for their art. And then like still pretending like they're acting when they're actually like being arrested for a double murder. Yes. Again, it's like they don't understand this is the real world and there's real consequences for their action and their behaviors. So Elizabeth, of course, was shocked and tried to write him a letter being like, what the hell was that? Who's this woman? What's going on? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, essentially. So they're playing games with each other. And Elizabeth just decided at that point that she's not going to fight extradition. She's going to go back to Virginia and she is going to plead guilty to her part in the murder. She's going to come clean. This is like the martyr part of the drama story, which, of course, is making Jens very nervous because if she gets any sort of deal to turn on him, he's screwed. So, well, Elizabeth is making plans to go back to Virginia and serve her time for what she's done. Jens and the German government were fighting extradition to the U.S. tooth and nail. Germany was trying to get him to come to Germany to face consequences in Germany rather than the United States. Jens really wanted to go back to Germany for a number of reasons. He was 18 when he committed the murders. In Germany, that counts as a juvenile. As a juvenile at the time, the very maximum sentence that he would have received, even for a double murder, was 15 years. In Virginia, he would have been considered an adult and the death penalty would have been on the table. Also in Germany, his attorneys could argue a psychiatric defense because a psychiatrist had determined that Jens was suffering from a folie a deux, which we've talked about, the madness of two, meaning that he had some sort of, I, guys, I know that this is not exactly the technical definition, but he had kind of merged his personality with Elizabeth and shared her delusions. He was under kind of a psychiatric break, essentially, when this was all happening and influenced by her. In Virginia, he was unable to argue that as a defense, this diminished capacity based on the folia do. But in Germany, he could. Okay. So he could argue that the psychiatrist would testify for him. Plus, even if he got the maximum, it was only going to be 15 years. So he very much wants to be in Germany for that reason. Well, unfortunately for Jens, the UK decided to extradite him to the United States under the condition that they would not sentence Jens to death if he was convicted. Okay. So death penalty is off the table, but he's back in Virginia. 
Elizabeth's hearing was first. She was pleading guilty, so there wouldn't be the traditional guilt or innocence phase of the trial because she's just straight up saying, I did it. And there was no jury of her peers, therefore. But they did essentially have almost a trial in front of a judge to determine what her sentence should be. Elizabeth's attorneys sought to minimize her involvement in the murders as much as possible. They argued that Elizabeth had willingly agreed to be extradited, and she had pleaded guilty to two counts of accessory before the fact because she wanted to come clean and do her time, saying, I deserve this. I should be here in prison. I need to do my sentence. I'm admitting my culpability in this crime. She took the stand, and she was incredibly poised, articulate, thoughtful, and very composed. She's very, you want to believe her. Yeah. You really do. Elizabeth stated that during a time she was involved with Jens, she had been on a lot of drugs. She claimed that when she wrote that she wanted to kill her parents or wishes that they were dead, they were simply childish fantasies that Jens misinterpreted and went too far with. She basically said, look at him. He's a little wimp who has never been in a fight in his life. I never really thought in a million years that he would try to do something like this or would successfully pull it off. She was saying that for me, this was a fantasy, just like our sexual fantasies of like, he's the big man who's going to go take care of my terrible ogre parents. She did agree on the stand to testify against Jens and help convict him. So she's like, this went too far. I am saying I am guilty because if I hadn't said those things to him, absolutely he would not have killed my parents. Yeah, she's only guilty of saying those things though. Yes, so that's what she's saying. Yeah. She's saying that this wasn't premeditated. Like there wasn't a plot, which I don't believe. And she's saying, and now I'm admitting my culpability and I'm going to do everything to bring him to justice as well. I'm not standing up for him at this point. So the prosecutor did not think that they could prove that she was the killer or that she was even present for the murders. Their theory of the events was very much that she was this Machiavellian, manipulative Lady Macbeth who seduced this young, naive guy and convinced him to murder her parents. Yeah. So they decided to just go with that. So that's why she's just getting two counts of accessory before the fact. But they make the case in their opening statements that it's pretty simple. Without Elizabeth Haysom, Jens would never have murdered her parents, and it's likely that he would have lived his entire life without murdering anyone at all. Yep. So if you look at it that way, she's deeply responsible for her parents' murder and for also turning somebody into a murderer. Yeah, but also if you can be manipulated by one person that easily to kill to end someone's life, that's also not a good personality trait. (laughs) That's not necessarily somebody you want to be hanging out with when you get into a fight with them. You know, like I would have thought from his childhood and how smart he is and how sarcastic he is and witty like that it would have, you would have had a little bit more self-autonomy. I don't know. I got to tell you guys, we're going to get into the docu-series later and there's something that's very off about Jens. Okay. We'll get more into it with his trial, but... It's clear that the docuseries is trying to convince you that he's innocent. On cross-examination, the prosecutor did try to get Elizabeth to admit that her mother had sexually abused her, or at least that she had said that her mother had sexually abused her, even if it wasn't true. And I think that, well, a lot of people found this inappropriate, that this was an inappropriate line of questioning that really didn't have anything to do with the case. It did, because it spoke to motive. And either she admitted 
that it was true and then she has a strong motivation for wanting her mother dead or she admits she lied and then she's a liar who told a very heinous untruth to incite her lover into a violent act. Yeah, both of them are not great. Yeah, and so she is very smart. She sidestepped the answer by saying that her mother had not sexually abused her, but she said, I said I was abused by my mother. I did not say she sexually abused me. And again, I said this at the beginning, we don't really know. And so they have a clip of this on the doc series and she pauses for such a long time and she's so measured and obviously thinking when she's answering these questions But I got to tell you, I could not determine whether she was trying to come up with something that didn't make her look like a liar, but also didn't say her mother molested her for her own credibility and for her own trial, or if she really was a victim of incest and sexual abuse and potentially did not want to talk about it in front of, this was being videotaped. So this is in front of the press. It's one thing to tell your boyfriend that your mother sexually abused you it's another thing for it to be headline news on a newspaper for people to be talking about it forever it's an extremely intimate and re-traumatizing experience so I gotta tell you I could not figure it out I could not figure out whether she's like strategizing in her head and that's why it's taking her so long to speak or if she's like I don't want to fucking tell these people though yeah I still don't know in general the prosecutor had a really tough time nailing the intelligent Elizabeth down Ken Englade wrote that she was a very shrewd witness. He said that cross-examining Elizabeth, prosecutor Updake was learning, was a very frustrating experience. She was very adept at maneuvering, slipping away, and not answering his questions. He had started out hoping to nail her on how she had controlled Jens, and he ended up letting her maneuver the dialogue and switch it to her advantage. Wow. She was... So good. And you don't dislike her, though. Usually when people try to, like, trick the prosecutor, you're like, oh, come on, you're pathetic. Yeah. But watching her, I wasn't mad about it. I wasn't mad about it. I was kind of on her side. I was like, she's having a very difficult time explaining her side. And she's speaking very articulately in order to get her side across in a way that was not combative or confrontational. But he just could not nail her down. The judge even said before he handed down her sentence, that he had concluded that she was a sensitive, poised, gifted, intelligent, and articulate person. It was these very qualities, in fact, that made his job more arduous. He said, it is difficult to pass judgment on someone whose IQ probably exceeds your own. Wow. What a great impression she made at this trial that the judge was like, yeah, you're smarter than me. (laughs) Yeah, you're smarter than me, but obviously not because you're probably going to go to jail. And she is. She absolutely is. Judge Sweeney concluded that while Elizabeth's crimes were reprehensible, there were a few mitigating factors that he had considered. Number one, that the prosecutor did not believe that she was actually present for the murders. Two, that she had not fought extradition and that she had pled guilty. And three, that the victim's family members, who are also, of course, Elizabeth's family members, were split on how lenient he should be for her. There was a couple siblings that were like, throw the book at her. And there was a couple that said, we want her to do her time for what she's done, but we're not advocating for the death penalty or life imprisonment. Okay. But are they going to like be there for her when she gets out? Like they wanted to like have a relationship with her after? 
I don't really know. I know one family member does afterwards, a cousin, but I do not know the status of her relationship with her siblings. I'm guessing it is not good. As a result, he decided to not give her a life sentence in favor of two 45-year sentences to run consecutively. So really 90 years. Yeah, so that's life in prison. Yes, but here's the thing, Andy. She would be eligible for parole under Virginia law in 1999. So it's more like 12 to 90 years, depending on when she would get out. Now, there's no promise she's actually going to get paroled that early, but it's possible. Jens would claim in the docuseries that Elizabeth got the sweetheart sentence for two reasons. Number one, that Judge Sweeney had been acquainted with or friends with Elizabeth's uncle, Nancy Hasem's brother. And that number two, the prosecutor had made a deal with her that he would vouch for her at her first parole hearing in order to get her to say she would testify against Jens. So he's arguing that she was making all these deals. Are any of those true? So Judge Sweeney did know Elizabeth's uncle, but I don't really think that it colored his decision at all. I feel like if anything, it would be worse. Like you murdered my friend's sibling. Exactly. Exactly. So it really didn't because he apparently, this is very uncommon. People don't usually do this, but he also had apparently one week after the sentencing, he had written a letter to the parole board and he said to them that he feared that the fact that he had not given her the maximum sentence could be interpreted to mean that he favored some sort of leniency for her. He wrote that he wanted to make it very clear that he did not. He realized that the most he could do was make a recommendation to the board because anything else would be beyond his jurisdiction. However, as the sentencing judge familiar with all aspects of the case, he said he had strong feelings about the punishment. Based upon the seriousness of the charges and the heinous nature of the crimes, I strongly feel that Elizabeth Hasem should not receive early release. I think that she should be required to serve a substantial portion of the sentence which I gave her. So to me, that does not seem like he's in her pocket at all because he's saying, I'm not going to be supporting her release at all. It doesn't, but is he the one who decides the 12-year possibility of parole? No, that's under Virginia law. Got it, got it, okay. So that's why he was saying, I don't like that it's possibly 12 years. I think she should get much longer, but I couldn't make that ruling because I didn't give her life imprisonment without parole. And Elizabeth was, in fact, turned down for parole upwards of a 15 times. By the time the docuseries came out in 2016, she was still in prison and she had been turned down 15 times. So if she had some sort of prosecutor deal, he was not stepping up for her. And Yen says on the doc that, oh, it's just because there was a political change, so he could not help her out, but she still had made that deal. It's like, well, the end result is the same. She's in prison. Yeah. He's just pissed. Yeah, so we'll get back to Elizabeth's ultimate fate in a bit. But right now, we have to find out what happened to Yen Soaring. His trial took place in June of 1990, and he completely reversed his story. Yen's now claimed that there was no way he could have killed Derek and Nancy because he wasn't even there. It was Elizabeth who murdered in cold blood while he was the one in Washington, D.C. creating the alibi. He said that he had confessed to save Elizabeth out of misguided love. He believed that he would be sent to Germany and get a slap on the wrist and that Elizabeth would be in the danger of facing the electric chair. Jens maintained and still does to this day, it was the act of a naive, foolish boy who had been lied to and believed he was in love. 
Yen said that he had used a credit card at the hotel and he could recall every detail of what he had done in D.C. that day, which provided them with the ticket stubs and the hotel receipt. Well, Elizabeth had confused the time that she had allegedly gone to see a movie. Like on the stand, they questioned her and I guess at her hearing, she said one thing and then at the Yen's trial, she said another time. And they were like, but really, it was this time. And so they were like, gotcha. And so he's like, I know everything. And it's like, well, dude, you've been in jail. You've had time to study the the alibi at this point. It's in discovery. Yeah. Also, who didn't give their blood type? Like, do we still not have his blood type? Exactly. Well, we do by this point. So we're going to get to that. So he said that Elizabeth coached him to take the fall for her, which is why he knew so much about how the crime scene looked that he didn't really know she had told him. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. Now, this defense seems crazy to us, but just based on the legal facts and the physical evidence, it wasn't totally crazy. The prosecution had had his confession and Elizabeth's testimony as basically their biggest evidence. Their physical evidence was very poor. Yen's fingerprints had not been found in the house. And while he did have type O blood, so do most of the population. It's about 45% of the population yeah, at the time. Yeah, but is most of the population in the middle of nowhere, Virginia? The prosecution also, Andy, had a matching footprint, kind of. So here's the thing. The print was on a sock, a sock that was never found. And so it wasn't like a hand print or a footprint that you could study. It was a sock print. All they could say was that Jens had the same size and shape of the foot of the sock print found. Guilty. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is what I think, too. But it gets really twisty-turning. Hold on. Elizabeth was a match for none of these things. So they're saying she did it, but she's not a match, which is why she was volunteered and was excluded right from the get-go. If Jens didn't think he was a match, if he truly hadn't been there, he would say, yes, I'll give my blood and stuff because I wasn't there. Now you could argue the counter that, well, obviously this was not precise science. It's not DNA. What if it was similar? Well, how would he have known it was similar? And don't you think it makes him look more guilty to just erase all of his fingerprints from his apartment and leave? Yeah, no. And the fact that he is really smart and he managed to get rid of every fingerprint from the place that he was living. Wild. It makes me think that he could absolutely be calculating what he's touching and what he's doing in the house while he's murdering. And maybe he didn't even go back in the house to slit their throats to make sure they're dead. Maybe he went back in the house because he's like, did I wipe that one surface? So it's not surprising to me that his fingerprints weren't found. He could still be guilty. What it would come down to was who the jury believed. Did they believe Elizabeth or did they believe Jens? Well, Elizabeth was poised, articulate, and soft-spoken on the stand. Jens was arrogant, rude, and abrasive. If this was a popularity contest, he was certainly not winning. Jens answered every question like a smartass. He, like, answered a question with a question. He had to be reprimanded by the judge. Oh, my God. Come on. Not doing yourself any favors. No. There was also one letter that he wrote to Elizabeth where he referred to the prosecutor and, I think, in general, law enforcement in Bedford County as yokels derogatorily, saying, like, they're simple-minded country folk that could never prosecute him. The prosecutor asked Jens, you still think we yokels know what's coming down, do you? And Jens responded combatively, absolutely not. I don't think you do. This is obviously a jury of people who live in Bedford County who are being thought that they're being called yokels as well. 
the doc series also makes the point that even though Elizabeth was not born in the area, her mother was, her family was famous in Virginia. She was a refined daughter of the Astor lineage. Well, Jens was an obnoxious interloper, an outsider, one who had also insulted the entire county. And he's acting very superior. You don't have to be a Jefferson scholar to see how this is going to shake out. No, you do not. I think you could be a yokel and figure it out. <laughs> you could be a yokel and figure this out. The jury did not waste much time. They returned a verdict in less than four hours. And they said that they knew he was guilty right away. Wow. They said that it was like they got in there like guilty. And the four hours that they spent was just talking about whether they, he, they were going to give him first or second degree murder. I thought you were going to say like what they were going to order for lunch. <laughs> Probably that too. <laughs> they decided on first degree murder. So two counts of first degree murder. They also recommended the penalty of two life sentences. The judge gave him life imprisonment, but with the possibility of parole. Whoa. And his first eligibility would be in 2003. So again, saying that she got some really great deal and he didn't, again, their first ability to be paroled is only four years apart. Yeah. The 2016 docuseries follows Jens's fight for justice and the overturning of what many people believed, and he certainly did, was his wrongful conviction. He continues to maintain that he was the fall guy. In the doc, they introduced the theory that Elizabeth was the killer, but perhaps with the help of two male classmates. The series definitely seems to want to do a, like a making of the murderer type of job and make a real case for Jens's innocence. Like I said, it was produced in Germany and repackaged for English-speaking audiences. Some of the evidence of Jens's innocence or things that were obviously just a little off and you could look sideways at about the original investigation and trial was that there was an FBI profile that was created to decide who the killer was that was never given to the defense. And they can't find this profile. It seemed to get conveniently lost. Okay. Elizabeth's fingerprints were found on a vodka bottle at the scene, which she went to see her parents all the time and she drank vodka. So yeah, not that much of a shocker. Yeah, exactly. And that her brand of cigarette was found at the scene. Okay. But if you're going to say like, well, it could be anyone with typo blood, you could also say it's anyone who smokes that brand of cigarette. Yeah. They said that the judge was in the Haysom family pocket, which again, we already talked about, which I don't necessarily think was true. And it was just like some other stuff basically saying like, this hasn't been tested which Jens did have a point. They needed to DNA test everything so they could exclude him for sure. But they couldn't because he had a type O blood. Well, I still don't know why. Like, he never gets into why he didn't immediately offer up his samples. Because he's guilty. Yeah. He's saying on the documentary, like, I want them to DNA test everything. I'm pushing for it because I'm innocent. He was saying that. And there was some bombshell evidence that very, very much did seemingly point to his innocence. So... You're going through this docuseries and you're just like, I'm not sure. And then they're talking about how, based on the fact that they now believe that there was some other mysterious DNA in the house, that maybe it wasn't him, and that it looked like, at the time, Governor Tim Kaine was going to let him out of jail, actually. Like, just release him early, just advise the parole board to let him go, not reverse his conviction or anything. And then he got voted out of office. The new governor did not want to 
let him out. And I guess Elizabeth broke her silence for the first time in 21 years. She had not spoken about this case at all. And she said, I would love to tell you that Jens is innocent, but he's not. So don't let him out, basically. But so you're watching this whole doc and you don't like know what's for sure. You're like, is he innocent? Is he not? And then right at the end, they say that in 2017, they did do some DNA testing and they found the profiles of two men that are unaccounted for. They're none of the family members. They're not Derek and Nancy. They're also not Jens. So you're like, shit, maybe he's innocent this whole time. I was like, he's guilty. He's guilty. He's guilty. And it's like, wait, okay, so his DNA is not there. And there's like these two other DNAs. Now, they didn't say what they tested. They couldn't test the blood. It was degraded at that point, I believe. So there's items in the house, like things that they found for evidence that they have kept. And apparently, out of all these items, there was a bunch that had they just had to exclude immediately because it's been so long and they weren't properly stored. And so that DNA evidence was degraded to a point where they couldn't extract yeah. any reliable DNA from it. But based on the 2017 revelation that his DNA was just not at the scene, at least on the things that they tested, at that point, everyone was like really getting into fever pitch, especially after this docu-series came out, saying, you got to let this guy out. He's definitely innocent. He had a former president of Germany speaking for him. There was lots of celebrities, including allegedly Martin Sheen. Even a former deputy attorney general of Virginia, she even appeared on the series in support of Jens. So on November 25th, 2019, after lots of public pressure, Governor Ralph Northam accepted the Virginia Parole Board's recommendation to free both Jens and Elizabeth. So she was still in jail, too. Jens was deported to Germany and Elizabeth was deported to Canada. And they are both ineligible to ever reenter the United States. Wow. Jens became something of a celebrity. He still is. He published books. I think he's working on another book. He does public speaking. He calls himself a coach. He's apparently in talks for a major Netflix special. Well, Elizabeth lives a very quiet life outside of the spotlight. She's somewhere we don't know in Canada. And she does not participate in media of any kind. So the big question is, if it wasn't Jens, who was it? Because the physical evidence also excludes Elizabeth. Well, in late 2019, three investigative journalists set out to answer that question by starting a what? Podcast. A true crime podcast, but of course. The podcast is called Small Town Big Crime. Go check them out. And I was not able to listen to the first season is just this case. I think that they're starting to do some other things, but it's really mostly just this case. And again, I wasn't able to listen to every episode. I listened to the last couple. And from what I've gathered on the outset, they were working with Jens to definitively prove his innocence and try to discover who had really killed the Haysom. So the plan was not, it wasn't like a free Jens because by 2019, he was already out. It was a collaboration to get to the bottom of what is now by many considered a cold case. If it wasn't Jens, then those killers are still out there. So that was really what they were trying to do. And they were working with Jens to get to the details of the case. Well, it turns out that Bedford County has additional crime scene items that were never tested for DNA. <sighs> so they used first theories put forth by Jens's defense to test the existing DNA profiles that they found these two strange male profiles that Jens's doesn't match with. and. They basically 
suggested that these two guys did it in the documentary. Both those guys were excluded, so they didn't do it. And then the investigative journalists, Rachel Ryan and Courtney Stewart, looked into two men who were drifters, who were convicted of a brutal stabbing in Roanoke around the same time in a very similar type of murder. Unfortunately, after months of work, neither of those guys were a match for those two profiles either. So they're like, crap. So again, like I said, there's these other items that haven't been tested by the state. They actually developed a petition for testing a list of items that were never tested that their forensic DNA expert believes that they can pick up reliable DNA from. So they're hoping to build out this profile and see if there's anyone else that could potentially fit this or run down some new leads. Now, they said that these samples might be too degraded, so they need first to be allowed to take them out of the state, whatever, storage place, and get them tested just to see if you can get DNA off of them. And first, they had to get that process approved by the Bedford County attorney, Wes Nance, and he agreed to it. He said, sure, look, I think we got the guy. He's out now. I'm telling you, it was Jens, but you guys want to do this to prove whatever, have at it, essentially. So they took the petition before a judge saying, we have approval by the attorney to do this. And the judge said, yeah, you might have approved by the attorney, but you're podcasters. You don't have the right to request this. You're not like, he's not requesting it. He's just saying they can. I'm not going to step in their way. You don't have any right to request this. And the only people who legally have any right are the people that were convicted of the crime to prove their innocence. So if you can get Yen Soaring or Elizabeth Haysom to just sign this petition, then I'll give it to you. So they're thrilled at that point. They're like, yes, Yen's has been on our side this entire time. He's been fighting his entire life for this DNA stuff. And so they knew he was going to say yes, but he did not. I knew it. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> All of a sudden, when they ask him to do this one thing and he's been participating the entire time after his lifetime mission, I'm using quote marks, and pushing and insisting he's innocent and wanting to get stuff tested, he has the opportunity to get to the bottom of it. And instead, he completely stopped speaking to the podcasters, stopped participating in the podcast completely. So they're like, what the hell happened? They tried to get to Elizabeth, who wants nothing to do with this because they wanted her to sign off on it. And she's like, I don't want this to be in the news anymore. I want this to die. I want it to go away. She wouldn't even speak to them. She spoke through her cousin, who essentially said no and vaguely called Jens Voldemort. <laughs> oh, my God. Although I'm not sure if that's from Elizabeth or the cousin. <laughs> so at the end of the day, they're like, wow, we were totally on his side. But now... All he has to do is sign his name, and he won't do it. I don't think he thought that they were going to get that far. Also, there's a list of what items would be tested. Now, maybe he was all in favor of whatever they tested before because he knew his DNA wouldn't be on it. And now these new items, he could say, shit, that's on the list, and I might have left my saliva there. I might have left something there. The hair they never tested. That could be his hair because he knows what they're going to be testing. So now all of a sudden he says no. So there was an ABC 13 news article that was published in September of 22 by Noreen Turin. And she talked to the podcasters and to Jens. And he said, 
I've already requested testing. I'm the one who's been pushing for it my whole life, but I'm not going to submit any more petitions because they're not legally required, he said to the journalist. Ah! He said that he believes the podcasters have their own agenda to confirm his guilt in order to boost their careers. So he's saying they're just trying to get famous by making me look bad because everyone likes me and I'm a big celebrity now. Which is not the case. These poor investigative journalists have been working so hard on this. And now it just came to a standstill. So their whole first season is just kaput. But that speaks volumes. It does. And I was like going crazy because I'm watching this doc and I'm like, I don't know. I just think he did it. And then it's like, well, the DNA proved he did. And I'm like, shit, I was wrong. Oh, my gosh. And then I read this and I was like, ha ha, maybe I wasn't wrong. (laughs) (sighs) It's crazy. So they said that one of the letters that Jens wrote to his attorney while he was still in the UK was like, essentially like, well, if I do have to get extradited or even if I get extradited to Germany or whatever, at least I can write a book about this someday and maybe use it to my advantage. So they're like, he's the one that is using this to his advantage. He's the one who's famous now. He's the one who's like, I'm going to have a big Netflix show. I'm the one doing these huge speaking engagements. He's the one who's now a celebrity for this. Maybe there'll be a Robert Durst moment on the Netflix show, you know? Like, I know. Yes. I hope they do somehow, someday, get those additional items tested because it would be nice to have some clarity. Clarity, for sure. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And also, Elizabeth is just like out. She's like, I think that... I believe her. I think that she was a, like a screwed up young kid and maybe she did have some complicated relationship with her parents. I don't believe that she was innocent of just accidentally saying some dramatic things and he took it the wrong way. I think she planned it with him. That's why they had the alibi planned out. I feel like they were both there. You think they were both there? So one of Elizabeth's brothers thinks she was there too because he said that his parents said that Elizabeth and Jens are planning to come over at some point right before the murders because they want to talk to us about something. And so we're planning for them to come over. And they just were like, ugh, we just really don't like that guy, but whatever. So he's like, I think that she was with him. But they did have the hotel receipts and the movie tickets. I don't know how they got those. Yeah, but you can check into a hotel and keep the receipt. You don't have to stay there. That's true. And you can get movie tickets and not go to it. Those are two very easy things to not do. It's not like they were recorded at a restaurant eating for those three hours. Yeah. Is this crazy, though? Yeah, that was a crazy one. In conclusion, I know we just had Valentine's Day, lovers. And I would like to remind y'all to keep your fantasies sexual. Have at it. Get kinky with it. But not murderous. No. Ew. No. And also, like, if you're going to try to be on the lamb in the wind... It's really only going to ever work if you actually are (laughs) face-off. If you're John Travolta or or Nick Cage. Cage. Yes. (laughs) And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Bye. 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 